0: is our life fulfilling. The reality is there will come a time for each of us to die, and when that time comes, we will either look back with grateful hearts, realizing that our life has made a difference in the lives of other people, or we will look back and we will wonder what was the value of our existence? What was the value of us being present in this place? When we die, will we look back and be grateful for the way God has worked through our lives, or instead, will we look back and wonder... Did it really matter at all? I will tell you that as a pastor, many, many times I have asked the question, what difference does my life make? What difference do I make by being a part of this world, of being a part of this church or another church where I've participated? There have been many, many occasions where I've asked the question, what difference does it make? And I want to challenge you this morning as we get started really with this question. What difference does it make? What is your purpose? Over the next several weeks, I'm going to be working through a series. We just finished a series entitled The Signs of Life. And really, I want to begin a series entitled The Questions of Life. Of life. And the first question that I want to ask this morning is why? Why are we here? What is our purpose? The story is told of a truck driver who was driving a, uh, a truck full of penguins. He had 500 penguins. Actually, I messed up the story. He had 200 penguins. And as he is driving this truck, his truck breaks down and he realizes he has to get them to the zoo. Well, another guy just happens to pull up and he says to him, tell you what, I'll give you $500 if you will take these penguins to the zoo. The man finds, uh, he he says he's got the time to do it and he agrees to take them. And the next day, this truck driver who had the broken down truck sees the same man. And here he is, he's got these 200 penguins that are following him around. And he asks him, "I, I thought I asked you to take them to the zoo. He said, well, you did, but after I took him to the zoo, I still had enough money, so I decided to take him to the movies, too. (laughs) That man misunderstood his purpose. He He misunderstood what he was supposed to be doing. I would suggest to you today that there are many in the body of Christ who misunderstand their purpose. We do not realize that God has a purpose that is far greater for us than we ever could have for ourselves far too many of us have settled for mediocre lives, making a mediocre difference when in reality we could have been changing the world for Jesus Christ. Today, I want to talk just a little bit about the why question. As we look, we're going to use a passage from Ecclesiastes as our model. And we look at a man named Solomon who asked that why question. He wanted to know what life was all about. We're going to be all over Ecclesiastes, so I'll just tell you we're going to start in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. If you want to turn there, we're going to look at the first two verses in Ecclesiastes 1 to get us started this morning. The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher, utterly meaningless, everything is meaningless. Now, if you were to read that from the King James, I think the word that is used instead of meaningless, it is vanity. In other words, it is of no value. Even though it may look really nice, the reality is it's nothing. It's meaningless or it's vanity. One of the funniest catchphrases of recent years is from an old Wendy's commercial. An elderly woman and her friends open their hamburger buns and find that they are virtually bare. The perceptive old lady who is able to see beyond the obvious asks the question, Where's the beef? Many people ask this same question about life. They find themselves sandwiched between birth and death, and unfortunately, they often find themselves in a sandwich without substance, a sandwich with no meat. Struggling to find identity, to find meaning in life, they ask the question, Where is the beef? To many, life is like a touchdown scored after the whistle has blown. They fight to gain ground. They struggle to reach the end zone. They score that touchdown, achieve their victory in life only to discover that it doesn't count. Maybe you felt that way, that life is all about pushing for yardage, but never really reaching your goal. Or perhaps you've reached your goal and you feel like it didn't satisfy, it wasn't enough. Striving for the meaning of life is often frustrating, leading us to give in to so many temptations in hopes of bringing satisfaction. This is what Satan wants. He will try every trick in the book to find that little chink in the armor. And no matter what his method, his goal is simple, to keep the believer from finding real meaning in life. You know, often, We assume that the people in this world that need meaning in life are those outside the church, but I would suggest that there are many within the church who still are searching for that meaning in life. We know that God has something bigger for us. We know that he has a bigger plan, but what is it? How can I figure out what God's plan is for me? The whole book of Ecclesiastes is dedicated to exploring the difference between life and existence. God chose Solomon to write this incredibly important book. Looking back in his life, Solomon is asking the question, Who am I? Why am I here? Where am I going? Well, as we read in the verse just a few moments ago, he begins this book by stating that everything is empty. It's meaningless, vain, without substance. But let's not stop there. He does have a positive message for each of us, no matter our age or our lifestyle he tried everything and as he evaluates the things that he tries he comes to some conclusions that are important first of all does pleasure provide purpose for us if you if you would look in chapter 2 for a moment verses 1 through 3 this is what he says i said to myself come now i will test you with pleasures to find out what is good but that also proved to be meaningless Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for people to do under the heavens during the few days of their lives. I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine. That's really what he's doing here. He's saying, You know what? I want to find pleasure. And I'll do whatever it takes to get pleasure. I will suggest to you that he would have been right at home in our culture. In our culture today, there are so many resources for individuals to find satisfaction and pleasure. The problem is that as they find that pleasure, they really are no closer to satisfaction. Far too often, we enjoy the pleasures of this world only to find out that they are not enough for us. Today, we have many other drugs and uh, resources available to give us that pleasure, but it's still not enough. He says he sought wine as his source of satisfaction, but it wasn't there. He was somewhat of a thrill seeker, trying to fill a void in his life. So many today are desperately trying to find the solutions to the problems of meaningless lives, but their solutions lead only to bigger problems." However, many will never live long enough to experience victory or defeat. Looking at some statistics, and I read that 4.6 million adolescents from age 14 to 17 experience the negative consequences of alcohol each year. We're talking about teenagers, 14 to 17, where it's illegal to even use alcohol. But 4.6 million adolescents in the United States will experience negative consequences of alcohol each year. Something is wrong in our culture, and it's the fact that we are seeking satisfaction in things that will not satisfy us. Then he goes on, and in verse 10, he talks about the great works that he would try to find his satisfaction in verse 4, it says, I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs of water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the singers and a harem and the treasures of kings and provinces, I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. There was nothing this man didn't do. He didn't go to the party. Instead, he brought the party to him. This was a man of great success. It says that he he hired male and female singers. He brought them in. Instead of going to a party, he would actually host the party and he found the reward of what he was doing was still meaningless. It was empty. It was dissatisfaction. What we see here is a man who even though he had everything, he had great prosperity, he could not find satisfaction in the things that he did or the things that surrounded him. Have you ever waited eagerly for something special, then find out that when that something special came, it was really a letdown for you? It wasn't quite as good as what you were expecting. Have you ever tried to catch the wind? It's an exercise in frustration. You try to grab at it, but it continually slips through your fingers. You can never actually catch it. How many of us, like King Solomon, are grabbing for things that are impossible to hold on to and worthless? This generation has so many opportunities that previous generations never dreamed were possible. But new opportunities have not given new meaning to life. The mere accumulation. The mere accumulation of things will not and cannot provide meaning and purpose in life. All the wealth that Solomon had, he still could only say vanity of vanities. Everything is vanity, meaningless, meaningless. Everything is meaningless. Well, my next question, does knowledge provide purpose? He decided that it's better to be smart than ignorant. That's a pretty logical thing. So he set out to become well-educated. I turned myself to behold wisdom, is what he says in verse 12. Well, he achieved that goal. In fact, in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 12, it says, I will do what you have asked. I will give you a wise and discerning heart so that there will never have been anyone like you, nor will there ever be. That's God speaking to Solomon. God allowed Solomon to become the wisest of men. Yet even in all that wisdom, There was still disappointment. Did his vast knowledge and wisdom give him a reason for living? No. In fact, it probably made it even harder for him, a little more miserable. He realized that his fate was no different than the biggest fool in town. In spite of his knowledge and riches, he would still die just like the poor ignorant man sitting in a gutter. Even though he had all this knowledge, all this wisdom, he could not cheat death. Even though he could think and reason better than anybody else around him, he realized that he really was no different from anyone else around him. His PhD in world knowledge was no protection from life's misfortunes and from death. He decided that education also is vanity. Now, I do want to just take a moment and point out that even though one cannot find true meaning in life through their education, and education is still an essential part of life. Young people in particular, pay attention to this. You still need your education. It will not provide you with meaning, but it will allow you the opportunity to be more successful to be able to take care of your family, to be able to meet your needs, you still need that education. Without at least a high school education, a person will find it extremely difficult to find a satisfying job of any kind. There is no denying that education is very important, but the point that Solomon is making here is that when, when he writes these words, he realized his education was not enough. His wisdom is not enough to find satisfaction well, maybe he would find it in his work. Actually, as we go on, he decides that as the pleasure of education does not provide purpose, maybe work would fill this void in his life. He turned his attention to his job. Surely he had the greatest job in the world. He was the king of Israel, a great nation with great wealth and great wisdom. People came from all over the world to meet with him, to be able to talk with him. They wanted to have peace treaties with him. Often neighboring kings would arranged to have him marry their daughters just so that they would have peace with him. His work must have given him great purpose in his life. Yet the theme of verses 17 and 18 is his hatred for labor. He says, I'm breaking my neck to build up Israel. And when I die, this is basically what he's saying. When I die, somebody else is going to take my place. Who knows what he or she will do with my kingdom all the work that you do, all the efforts that you put forth, there comes a day that all of it will pass. And even that becomes meaningless. You work really hard. That's wonderful. You make a great living. You provide for your family. But guess what? There's still going to come a day that you're going to die. And no matter how much wealth you built up, you're not guaranteed that that's going to be there to provide for your family anymore. Maybe you started your own business and you thought to yourself, this is going to be great. This will be a blessing for my family for generations to come. But the reality is there's no guarantee that your work will continue beyond you. Your work still leaves you with this idea that, you know what, it's probably not enough. As we begin to look in chapter three of Ecclesiastes, there is an overall system that does not change just because of the fact that you want it to change. There is a sense of irony here. We work all our lives, to, to, yet we gain very little. We work within a system that is already planned out, functioning and unchangeable. We make contributions, but we can never change the system that God has put in place. We live to die. For everything, there is a season, there is a time for life. There is a time for death. There is a time for peace. There is a time for war. And guess what? You are not guaranteed to change anything. In fact, you cannot. All of your striving, all of your work, you have no ability to change life in itself. Solomon asks, what profit is there for the worker if God has already got all of this locked into place? Why work if he's already got us pinned in this way? Verse 9 of chapter 3. What is the purpose? Everything is vanity. Yet we do find an answer in chapter 3. Look at verse 11. It says, He has made everything beautiful in its time. He has also set eternity in the human heart, yet no one can fathom what God has done from beginning to end. This is the answer to Solomon's search for meaning in your life. All the world, throughout all the ages, for all eternity. This means that God has placed in every man's soul a big question mark. We question why we're here. What is our purpose? Who create us? And in the midst of everything, It feels as if something is still missing in our lives. People all over the world are looking for a God to fill the void within their lives. Without that, life has no purpose, no meaning. As Solomon said, everything is vanity. It's emptiness. It's meaningless. Many people try many different solutions, but there is only one answer. God has set eternity in the hearts of men and only he can satisfy the heart's desire. Who owns my life? We forget that life and its labor is a gift from God. We feel we have earned these things. We set our agendas and we get angry when things get interrupted. But your life is not your own. Your life has meaning only in Jesus Christ. You may do lots of good things. I pray that you do. I hope that you have an incredible impact on the people in your life. But understand this, until you allow yourself to, to truly be owned by Him, your life has no meaning. Your life is meaningless. James chapter 4, verse 13 to 14, he says, Now listen, you who say today or tomorrow we will go to this or that city, spend a year there, carry on business and make money. Why, you do not even know what will happen tomorrow. What is your life? You are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. You think you've got everything figured out. You think you know exactly what God's going to do. But the reality is you are in his hands. It's kind of a scary place because you're releasing control and you're saying, God, I trust you. You run with things. But here's the problem. When we do that, we're no longer in control. We're trusting him to do what he needs to do. And it's kind of a nervous position to be in. Have you ever put your trust in somebody and they let you down? It kind of disappointed you a little bit. Maybe you had this vision of this is where you're going to go. And they said, no, we're going to go this way instead. Well, that's no fun. Well, what if we surrender our lives to God and we've got these great visions in our mind? This is what we're going to do. And God says, yeah, but I really want you to do this. That's a really scary position to be in. But I'm going to tell you, it's also the most rewarding position to be in. Because far too often we've got in our mind that we need to go this way, but we don't see what's sitting around the next corner. And really, we'd be much better off if we simply would allow Him to lead, because He's the one who gives us purpose and He's the one who gives us meaning. We need to follow in His footsteps and allow Him to be our guide. Job was one who struggled just a little bit with this, entrusting his life to God he struggled a little bit. Job chapter one, verse 12 says, the Lord gave and the Lord hath taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He seems as one who he trusts the Lord. And he says, God, I'm yours. I'll do whatever. The whole essence of this book though, in the book of Job is the principle of taking back gifts. It seems as though God is continually taking back gifts. After losing everything he had, including his health, he cries out to the Lord. This is the same man who said, the Lord giveth and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He gives praise to the Lord. But after losing everything, he basically asks the question, why are you doing this to me, God? I'm a righteous man. Why are you doing this to me? He had advisors, friends who did everything possible to discourage him from looking to God. They told him, just curse God and die. They told him, well, you must have done something wrong. They wanted to blame him for all of his troubles that were there. I hate to say it. The one thing that he probably wished the Lord would have taken was that nagging wife, but it just wasn't happening because she was not encouraging at all, not pointing them back to God. And he asked the question, why are you allowing this to happen? I have done no wrong. God replies to him, and as he does, he basically says, who is this that darkens counsel by works without knowledge? In other words, who is this that comes expecting me to do something without you having all of the information? He goes on. He says, now gird up your loins. This is me saying it in my words. Act like a man. And I will ask you and I will instruct you. God asked Job, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? You have this game plan in mind. You know exactly what you want to see happen. You want it to look like this. And God says, but you are in my hands. You have entrusted your life to me. Trust me. I'm going to tell you today, there are many people who ask the question, Why? Why am I here? Uh, Rick Warren years ago wrote a book, The Purpose Driven Life, and the whole principle of the book was based on one one simple question. What on earth am I here for? That is the why question. Why am I here? There is a world of people who are dying for that answer. And I'm telling you that through Jesus Christ, all of us have a purpose. The why is answered within him. He has given us the opportunity to make a difference, to change this world but only when we truly surrender our lives to him. That video you watched at the beginning posed the question, really, when you die, what difference will you have made? And I ask that same question for you today. I don't know. My hope is that every one of you lives at least another 60 or 70 years. Some of you guys are thinking, oh, I don't know if I want that, Pastor. (laughs) My hope is that you still got a long time left to be able to impact the world around you. Maybe you don't. So I ask the question, when you die, how big of a difference will you have made? Will you have fulfilled a purpose? What I will assure you of is this. If you have fulfilled a purpose outside of Jesus Christ, you have settled for second best. Because Jesus Christ is the one who truly gives you purpose and allows you to make a difference in the world around you. I'm going to ask everyone if you bow your heads with me for a moment. Father, as we come before you today, we recognize that even in a church, there are many people who seek purpose. For many of us, we wake up in the morning and we wonder why. Why? Why am I here? What is my purpose? What kind of difference can I make in this world? And sometimes the answer seems empty. Lord, I pray today that you would help us to recognize that that answer is found in our relationship with you. Lord, I pray today for the one who perhaps they're questioning their purpose. I pray that right now they would begin to realize that they have the incredible privilege and opportunity to be a part of something bigger than themselves. But I pray that you would allow each one of us today to recognize your will for us. Open up doors that we might be a, a light, a beacon to the people around us, that we could introduce them to the hope that only you can offer. Lord, I thank you for those who have invested in my life, that have changed my world, who have gone out of the way to do whatever it takes to change Me, just by offering hope through Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for the next generation as well. Lord, I pray that you would help us to recognize your purpose in us so that this world might be changed. Pray for each individual that is here right now and I ask that you would fill us with your spirit and use us in a mighty way. Lord, I pray today that as we are used by you or that we would not get in the way. Help us to follow your spirit's lead. Even if that means we walk through difficulty and troubles and trials, Lord, I pray that you would help us to truly be surrendered to you so that we wouldn't come before you and try to tell you how to do your job, but rather we would be willing to follow wherever you lead it, wherever you led. Lord, I pray that you would be honored. Help us to live for you. In Christ's name we pray, amen. I will tell you that to me, this is one of the most important questions as we deal with the community around us. Why are we here? There's a whole lot of people looking for the answer. I'm telling you, the answer is found in Jesus Christ. We are here to worship him and to allow him to live through us. Will you allow God to change the world through you? I hope so. As we close this morning, Thank you so much for being a part of our worship service today. I challenge you to go out and to be the answer to other people's questions. In Christ's name, we've gathered. In Christ's name, we've prayed. May you be his example. Thank you.